Well, good morning. I'm just going to jump right in because uh, there's a lot that the Lord has for us today, and I'm going to start like this. This is going to maybe be the weirdest title for a sermon that you have ever heard, but by the end, I promise you're going to get why. So this week, as we dive into the next week, the next couple chapters in our book, How to Worship a King, as we continue to look at what it means for us as New Testament, New Covenant Christians to worship in the patterns and in the spirit of the Old Covenant that God has given, this week, uh, the sermon is titled, Showering Before Your Date. Showering Before Your Date. So when I was a senior in high school, Bailey and I had been dating for about six months uh, by the time this point rolls around and, uh, or by the time prom rolls around, excuse me, and uh, I went for an older woman actually, so Bailey was in college at the time and ended up being unable to attend prom with me because she was doing something that she apparently thought was much more important than going to prom with me, which was going on a mission trip and serving poor children in the Dominican Republic, so... I was like, okay, fine, I guess I can't go with Bailey to prom. So instead, I went with a friend of mine named V, someone who Bailey had also grown to be friends with as well. And although this wasn't really a date because we were just going as friends, I think the principle remains that you're going to see in just a moment. See, I had this tendency back then that almost six years later now, I'm still struggling to kick where I overschedule myself because I think I can do everything. And so if there's an open minute in my calendar, I just fill stuff with it because I just have this kind of mindset that I can do it all. And so for my senior prom, I woke up the day before prom, which would have been a Friday. I got up at 6 a.m. I went to lifting. I had school all day. I had track practice after school. Then as soon as track practice was over, I went and worked a 24-hour overnight shift at the Arc of East Central Iowa, which provides respite care services to people with disabilities. And I worked there in high school. Uh, I showered and put my suit on at the ark. I had a coworker fix my bow tie, and then I went straight to pictures, and then dinner, and then prom. And for those of you that know what the prom schedule is like with post prom, then our group went to dinner or to breakfast after post prom was over. And so, for the only time in my life, I was awake for right about forty-eight straight hours. But the point of all of this is that when I got to the point of getting ready for prom and needing to take a shower, I realized that I hadn't brought any soap with me and I knew that I needed to shower because keep in mind I was going on at that point like even 24, 26 hours straight of being awake. So one of the people I was working with jokingly said, why don't you just use Dawn? And so I did. I showered with dish soap. And I was actually pretty flustered by the time I got to pictures because um, my bow tie wasn't quite straight. At the time, my hair was so long that I had this curl that hung down on my forehead and I was just feeling really self-conscious about it. I actually think I have a picture in the slides of me with this little curl on my forehead and I could just not get it. I seriously considered taking out scissors and just snipping it off. Um, But V told me no, so I didn't. And I was feeling really self-conscious, but one of the first things that she said to me when we started taking pictures was, you smell great. (laughs) And so for even with somebody that I wasn't really there on a date with, uh, just going as friends, there's this universal principle that all of us understand when it comes to personal hygiene, and that is people are more willing to be near to you if you've showered recently. 
And if you've made it with me this far, you're probably thinking, like, what the heck is the spiritual parallel? Well, we're going to get there, so just relax. Um, But if this is your first time here or you're new to this whole preaching thing and you're sitting in the congregation right now thinking about whether or not the people around you can smell you, just relax. This is church. We love each other anyways, no matter how bad you smell. And so as we move into something that I hope will allow us to better understand this picture of worship, I think we've been in this series of how to worship a king. We've been talking about the picture of the tabernacle and the principles that it gives us regarding worship. So I want to show this picture of the tabernacle complex, and it kind of has laid out for you the different aspects of the tabernacle. And I cannot see the screen, so is that up there? Okay. So last week, Pastor Andrew talked about the gate and the bronze altar or the altar of sacrifice for burnt offerings, and he talked about how Jesus is our ultimate sacrifice, the one that makes it possible for us to draw near to the Lord in the first place, but that as worshipers of God, you and I also have something to sacrifice. God calls us to live a life of submission to him, of giving up idols, of anything else in our lives that we value, treasure, or worship more than God. So let me make this very clear. We do not offer spiritual sacrifices as Christians in order to be saved because Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice. Faith and trust in him and what he has done is what saves you. But after that, one of the fruits of or the results of your salvation, one of the things that allows you to continually draw nearer unto God is through offering yourself as a living, living sacrifice, of giving yourself up to God completely. That's Romans 12, 1 and 2. That's what we're called to as worshipers, as those who still offer sacrifices to God today. And so this week, we're moving further into the tabernacle, looking at the bronze laver and the table of showbread, which you can see are deeper into the tabernacle compound closer to the Ark of the Covenant where God's presence is residing. So among the many purposes of worship, such as giving God the glory he's due, we're also seeking to draw near to him. That as we kind of walk our way metaphorically deeper into the tabernacle complex, we're getting closer to the heart of God. And so we talked last week about the gate, we talked about the altar, of burnt sacrifices next week there's no sermon because it's the children's program but i just love all of you so much that i'm going to do something i absolutely hate i'm going to preach a sermon to empty chairs and record it because i think that the the lampstand and the candles are that important and we had already written the schedule for our sermon series before we scheduled the children's program so there will be something that comes out probably on facebook around midweek about the lampstands and then on christmas eve we'll talk about the ark and the Holy of Holies in the morning, and then in the evening we'll talk about what it means to prepare the way for the Lord and worship, which ties really nicely into Christmas Eve and the advent of Jesus Christ. So if you caught none of that, catch this, it will be worth it for you to come to church in the morning and in the evening of Christmas Eve, because there'll be different services. So we're going to dive first this morning into the bronze laver. I can't remember on that picture if it says bronze laver or brazen laver, but uh, that comes to us from Exodus chapter 30, verses 17 through 21. Um, I'm preaching out of the ESV today. We usually preach out of the NIV, and I just forgot. So I wrote the sermon from the ESV. There you go. 
The Lord said to Moses, you shall also make a basin of bronze with its stand of bronze for washing. You shall put it between the tent of meeting and the altar and you shall put water in it with which Aaron and his sons shall wash their hands and their feet. When they go into the tent of meeting or when they come near to the altar to minister to burn a food offering to the Lord, they shall wash with water so that they may not die. They shall wash their hands and their feet so that they may not die. It shall be a statute forever to them, even to him and to his offspring throughout their generations. So if you're like me, before we started researching for this series, I never had actually considered the fact that I didn't know what the word labor meant. Um, The best picture that the author of our book gives, which is a pretty accurate one, is a big bronze birdbath. Okay, and so that's what we're talking about when we say the brazen laver. There's two things to note first when you dive into the book of Exodus in these chapters. One of them is that in Exodus 25 through 30, the description of how to construct the tabernacle begins at the center with the ark and it moves outwards with a couple exceptions. So you'll notice that I'm going to talk in a bit about something that's farther in the tabernacle, but I'm actually going to go backwards in the Bible. That's because the description of the tabernacle started at the center and moved out. And then secondly, if you're maybe doing a read through the Bible in a year or you're reading through the book of Exodus and you're looking at the chapters of Exodus in order, you'll notice that if you flip to Exodus 35 through 39, you're going to read almost exactly the same things as you read in chapters 25 through 30 because the first time is God telling them to do it. And then in chapters 35 through 39, you see them actually doing it. And that's helpful for us because we get some additional info about what's taking place here if you read both of those accounts. So in Exodus 38, 8, it also says, he made the basin of bronze and its stand of bronze from the mirrors of the ministering women who ministered in the entrance of the tent of meeting. It's important to note that back then, mirrors were not made out of glass and silver and aluminum like they're made out of today. It was actually made out of highly polished bronze. So they would take this very high quality, very high polished bronze. They used that to make this laver, this, this basin to wash themselves in out of the same metal that the women of the temple had used as mirrors. And so we're going to talk today about the brazen laver and the table of showbread. So the first point is simply this. The bronze laver, or you can say the bronze basin, represents the washing power of the word of God. In worship, as we seek to draw near to God's presence or to get deeper into the tabernacle, We first need to be washed by God's word. This is the regular process of filling our lives with scripture. The Bible is not just another book that we read. It says of itself in Hebrews chapter 4 that it is living and active. It's sharper than a two-edged sword. We are not supposed to read the Bible like we read a newspaper or a magazine article or a Facebook post. Going to the word of God, illuminated by the Holy Spirit, is asking for God to show us more of himself as we grow closer to him in love and in the process are sanctified, which is just a big theological word for being washed and becoming a little more like Jesus every time we read it. Sanctification is being cleansed and then it's being changed, changed more into the image of of Christ. And so as we talk about being washed by the word, we have to preface with something that I think is very important, something that we have to get in order to have the right heart posture towards God in worship. And that is this. 
We are not washed by the word so that we can be good enough for God to save us. We are saved despite our brokenness and our grime and our sin. And you have to get this because while I would absolutely encourage non-believers to get into God's word, reading the Bible does not save you. The washing that has to take place in your life before the washing of the word can take full effect is the washing that comes only through the blood of Christ. The blood that you cannot earn and you cannot deserve, you can simply accept. Salvation, being washed clean of the ultimately fallen state of our hearts, the thing that separates us from God, being reconciled or brought back together with God. Those things do not happen because we wash ourselves in the word. Those happen because of what Jesus did for us on the cross. Only after we've accepted the true washing, the real soul-level washing of the blood of Christ that we might be saved, Only after that takes place can we truly be washed by the word in worship. And so for those of us that are washed clean by the blood of Christ, you know as well as I do that we still live in a fallen and broken and grimy world. So much so that even for those of us who are saved, we still go throughout our daily life and we pick up some of that dirt. And we need to be washed of that in order to draw near to God in intimacy. It doesn't make us any less saved to need to be washed by the word, but not washing ourselves in the word, not drawing near to God and asking for his spirit to wash us through the word of the scriptures is a hindrance to our intimacy with God. The word, the Bible, like the brazen laver, both shows us our dirt and cleanses us from it. The clear water and the polished bronze in which the priests would look to see themselves before they entered into the holy place would show them where they were dirty and then it would also wash them clean. And the Bible is the same way. It shows us where we have gone wrong, but it also through the power of the Holy Spirit is the thing that will wash us clean. We all know this to be true practically, I think. When you are living a life full of sin, when you've had an especially broken week where you haven't been striving after the Lord, you know that it feels hard to draw near to God. And when you refuse to wash yourself with the word, when you refuse to be sanctified because you're too distracted to actually worship God, to draw near to him in intimacy, because you're so focused on the world and your circumstances and your sin, it's in those moments that we find ourselves saying, God, I feel like I'm far from you. And we are far from him because our sin is separating us from God. Being washed by the word means that the Bible is more than just a self-help book. And it's more than just a list of good moral teachings. It is a lifeline to the characteristics of a majestic and holy God who came in the form of Jesus and acted as a sacrifice on your behalf so that you would be set free from sin and death. And if that's true of the word's power, then sometimes being washed by the word is going to mean submitting myself to the word's power. Being washed by the word means submitting myself to it. This is going to make some people mad, but I'm going to say it. That means that when the Bible and I disagree, I'm wrong, not it. I get that we don't like that in the American church. 
I get that we don't like that in a place like Center Point where most of us have enough expendable income to get what we want a good portion of the time. We're used to getting what we want. You might even quote passages of Scripture to me like 2 Corinthians chapter 3 that says, Now the Spirit of the Lord, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. To another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. You'll say, but where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. That's true. But freedom does not mean doing whatever you want. Freedom means living into the purposes that God has outlined for your life in a way that's unhindered, unencumbered by sin. It's like a fish out of water. You could say that if you take a fish out of its fish tank and throw it into your driveway, it has much more freedom because there's no walls around it. But that thing's not going to flourish. It's going down your toilet. A fish out of a tank is free, but they're not living into the purpose that God has made for their lives. Freedom only works when we are living the way we're designed to live, which is part of what the Word shows us. After we are saved, the power of God moving in us through the Holy Spirit with the Bible as his tool transforms us from one degree of glory to the next and never stops. That means that no matter how washed you feel, there's always more washing to be done. There's always more sanctification. There's always more becoming like Jesus to be done. There is no such thing as a perfect Christian, and I would actually waver wager, sorry, typo, I would actually wager that anyone who calls themselves a perfect Christian has never actually read the Bible. You'll notice that the entire biblical testimony goes to very great length to make every single person in Scripture look like a sinner except for one, except for Jesus. That you and I are always being transformed from one degree of glory to the next. Being transformed, being washed, being sanctified does not just mean going to God's word and looking for good life lessons. It means expecting to meet with God in his power. We have to prepare ourselves for that because when we meet God in his power, something is going to change. A pastor friend of mine always used to say, God loves you the way you are, but he won't leave you the way that you are. And so if you're going to show up and ask for God's presence in your life, you should expect to be changed. The pa- a pastor from Texas that I enjoy listening to, Matt Chandler, says it like this. We approach the word of God for, not for principles, but for power. We approach the word of God not for principles, but for power. One of the most heartbreaking things I see online is when people post quotes about growing or about things getting better in their life that are rooted in absolutely nothing, that have absolutely no power. Things like, oh, I'm on the grind. I'm just going to work hard. I'm going to get the next dollar. The only way to go from here is up. Those are empty words. You might feel great posting them, but they have no power to change your life because they're not from God. To this point, as we've looked at the sacrificial altar last week, the brazen labor this week, we've been seeing a representation of how God ministers to us. Representation of God ministering to man through the work of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That before we can get further into the tabernacle, meaning before we can get closer into God's presence, we have to be atoned for, which is 
the bronze altar, which is the sacrifice representative of Jesus' death on the cross for us. We have to be made clean, which is Jesus' blood covering us, his resurrection raising us as new creations with him and being washed by that, represented here by the bronze basin. Why do these things need to happen? Why do we need the blood of Jesus? Why do we need the sacrifice on the cross? And then now as worshipers, why do we need the altar? Why do we need self-sacrifice? Why do we need the washing of the word in order to get into the holy place, in order to get closer to God? Back then, in the time of Exodus, they needed to be washed so that they didn't die. It says that twice in our passage from Exodus chapter 30. They needed to be washed so that they didn't die because God is so holy that coming into his presence unclean was dangerous. It's why we need Jesus to cleanse us so that we can draw near to God. Because when sin and God's holiness meet each other, it always ends poorly for sin. We have to be cleansed before we can enter into the holy place because the holiness of God is actually so great that it's dangerous to the unholy. God's presence is no longer contained to the ark. It actually now lives inside each of us in the person of the Holy Spirit. And this can't happen if we're not washed first by the blood of Jesus. We would burn up and die. God's presence can't leave heaven in the form of the Holy Spirit. The third person of the Trinity can't live with inside our hearts, like the scriptures say, unless we've first been washed by the blood of God because God's holiness is so great. We see an example of the greatness of God's holiness, just how powerful and dangerous it can be to the unholy if you look in Exodus chapter 34 when Moses comes down from Mount Sinai where all of these instructions are being given to him. So in Exodus 34, it's actually the second time that Moses comes down to the people. If you know your Bible, you think back to to Moses receiving the Ten Commandments. And he comes down the mountain for the first time in Exodus 32. And when he comes down the mountain, the people of God, who have been out of Egypt for not that long, are already like, God left us. He abandoned us. Moses has been up on the mountain for too long. We better make ourselves a bronze idol, right? So they start throwing their jewelry together. They melt it down. They make it into the form of a calf and they start worshiping this thing that they literally just watched Aaron make with his own hands and say, look, this is the God that brought us out of Egypt. This is the God who is going to save us. And when Moses sees this after getting down from Mount Sinai, he's so angry that what does he do? He breaks the actual 10 commandments. He throws them on the ground and shatters them. So then he has to go back up the mountain a second time and get the tablets with the commandments on them again. And he comes down in Exodus 34 and it says in Exodus 34 that Moses has to wear a veil over his face because even the leftovers of God's glory and holiness on Moses' face are too much, are too powerful for the sinful people of Israel to behold. That's how powerful the glory and holiness of God is. That Moses' face with the leftovers of God's holiness would have burned people alive if they actually were able to look at it without him veiling it first. So because we have been made clean by Christ, we no longer have to do things like sacrifice animals and do ritual washings to come before the Lord because God's holiness is able to dwell within us in the person of the Holy Spirit only because we've first been washed by the blood of Christ. And we offer these sacrifices and we wash ourselves with the word not because we need them to be saved but because they're conducive to proper worship. 
because they allow us to draw near to God in intimacy. And so as we move further into the tabernacle, Tim, if you'd throw that picture back up for me, we're going to move now into the table of showbread, just a little further in, into the holy place. So you'll notice that from the bronze laver, they actually have to enter through another gate into the holy place before they get to the table of showbread. And we're going to read about that in Exodus. Oh, sorry. I just did what Pastor Andrew did two weeks ago and got a whole page ahead of myself. You can leave that picture up there though, Tim. Ephesians 5, 25 and 27, 25 through 27, demonstrates this idea of the washing of the word as an example. It says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. This is an example of the washing with the word. If we want intimacy with God, we first have to be washed by the word of God. It's kind of like if a bride, picture yourself at a wedding venue and the bride walks down the aisle. Think classic wedding with me where a bride still wears a veil. She walks down the aisle and she gets to the end of the aisle and the groom, so excited to see his beautiful bride on their wedding day, goes to unveil her face to the church and to himself and she has green stuff in between every tooth and she has dirt smudged on her face. Like that's us going before the Lord without first washing ourselves clean with the word of God. And for men, this should be especially convicting because if you read Ephesians 5, one of the flagship passages on marriage in the New Testament, it says that you, if you're a father and a husband, actually have a response. Yeah, you can throw it up there, Tim. You actually have a responsibility to wash your wife with the word. Being a husband and a father is a big deal because part of being the spiritual head of the house means that it's your responsibility to make sure your wife and children are being washed by the word. It's not enough for you to just worry about yourself. It's our job to read it with them, not just for the sake of reading, but so that they are being washed and experiencing God's power in their lives as well. And don't tell me, gentlemen, that you don't know enough because I promise you, it doesn't say in Ephesians 5 that you have to be able to quote commentaries. It doesn't say you have to be able to preach a sermon. It just says you got to wash them with the word. That means get that thing and open it and start reading. And when you open up the Bible and start reading and you start asking God to show up in power, I don't care how little you think you know about the Bible, he will show up. And also, this one really gets me. Don't talk to me about not liking to read. I hear so many guys say, I just don't like to read. And at the same time, you can tell me the name, the number on the jersey, and the statistics of every single guy on your favorite sports team. Or some of you could tell me the expected ROI of the S&P 500 for the last 20 years. You're more than happy to read something if it's something that you value. And so now, finally, after being washed by the word, as we move into the holy place, we move through the door into the holy place, made right under the sacrifice of Christ, washed clean by his blood, 
then after that as Christians, having sacrificed the things of our lives that we put before God, having been washed clean by the word, we're finally able to enter into the holy place. And so the second point this morning is this. You're like, man, that's only point number two. There's only two points, don't worry. The table of the showbread is drawing into an intimate relationship with God for our sustenance. Drawing into an intimate relationship with God for our sustenance, for our being sustained. So far, the aspects of the outer courtyard have been representations of what it means to believe and receive God. But now we're moving into what it means to become a worshiper, someone who lives their entire lives in the power and intimacy of God. And so this is where we pick up in Exodus 25. You shall make a table of acacia wood. Two cubits shall be its length, a cubit its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold and make a molding of gold around it. And you shall make a rim around it, a handbreadth wide, and a molding of gold around the rim. And you shall make for it four rings of gold and fasten the rings to the four corners at its four legs. Close the frame, the rings shall lie. Close to the frames, the rings shall lie as holders for the poles to carry the table. You shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold, and the table shall be carried with these. And you shall make its plates and its dishes for incense and its flagons and bowls with which to pour drink offerings. You shall make them of pure gold, and you shall set the bread of the presence on the table before me regularly. So we have all of that stuff in what is the outer courtyard Because it's hard to have intimacy with God if your life is not first characterized by sacrifice, submission, and the washing of the word. For example, try fighting with your spouse all the way to church or cussing out someone in the parking lot and then walking in the doors and expecting to feel close to God right away. It just doesn't work. But once you get into the holy place, once you have been washed and sacrificed, now you're ministering to God. Now you're drawing near to God. You're getting the truly deepest desire of your heart if you're a Christian, and I wager even if you're a non-Christian, and that is simply being with God. Our author, Zach Neese, puts it this way. The outer courtyard is loud and it's smelly and it's distracting. There's all these people washing in the laver, offering sacrifices. The number of people there is much greater. The outer courtyard is loud and smelly and distracting. It's where the fallenness of humanity is being dealt with. But the inner courtyard is when we're able to put all of that behind us and simply dwell with God. He says, if the courts, meaning the outer courtyard, are like a family family picnic, The holy place is like a romantic dinner for two. That's the point. The courts were designed for ministry to the public. The holy place was designed for intimacy with God. It was customized for intimacy. And if you're a Christian, you can have that. You can have intimacy with God who is not far off. A God who has, in fact, not even waited for you to make yourself clean before he comes to you. A God who came to earth in the person of Jesus, lived a perfect life that we should have lived, died in our place, and rose from the grave so that we might have new life. A God who ascended back into heaven to prepare a place for you and who did not leave you alone but sent his Holy Spirit to come to tabernacle to dwell inside of your heart. That's what's available to you right this 
moment if you are in Christ. But here's what I get from people all the time, and I find myself in my sin saying it too. I can't feel God. He seems like he's far away. I don't know where he is. I don't know what he's doing, but I know that I'm not close to him. And at some point, we have to realize that God has done everything to give us intimacy with him and that the problem in our intimacy with God lies with us and not with him. If we as Christians can't feel close to a God who has literally taken up residence in our hearts, then that's on us, not him. There was never not bread on the table of showbread. They would replace it regularly. The table was never empty. God's presence never abandons. And so if we feel far from him, it's not because he's far from us. But think about it this way. Every other relationship in your life only grows in intimacy when you actively pursue it and spend time with that person. If you and I are lazy, if we don't make an effort to go see our friends, we're going to start feeling far away from our friends. And so how do we not be lazy when it comes to drawing near to the Lord? We avoid laziness. I was talking with a high school senior literally this week, and he said, I want to be close to God, but I just don't want to read the Bible. And I want to be close to God, but getting up for church on Sundays is hard. I'm not saying that those things are not true. But what, I'm, what I am saying is that as we seek to combat laziness when it comes to drawing close to God, we should remind ourselves of the gospel and what's on the other side of our obedience, and that is intimacy with the Lord. If it's true that there's this great big God who created the entire universe, who has been present, who is present, who will be present for all eternity, and he has given you the opportunity to know him and be known by him, and that the way that he did that was to put himself in your place, to die as a payment and an atonement for the sins that separate you from him. If we really believe that the God of the universe cared so much for us that he would die in our place, how can we be lazy about that? I think the reason we're lazy is because we're forgetting to remind ourselves of the gospel. If we really believe that that's true, then how can we say things like, oh, I love God, but I just want to sleep in? Our family has connections um, through grandparents and aunts and uncles and cousins to a college in Huntington, West Virginia called Marshall University. The only reason you might know of it is because there's a movie with Matthew McConaughey in it called We Are Marshall. And our grandparents were actually in college when that plane crash took place. And there's this scene in the movie, We Are Marshall, where they're trying to convince, and if you don't know the plot, um, there was a tragic plane crash in Huntington. Uh, Their whole football team, all the coaches, a bunch of the sports writers and commentators died in that plane crash in 1970. And in 1971, they're trying to restart their football program, and they have to petition the NCAA to get permission to play freshmen, because back then, you could not play freshmen in Division I football. And their AD sent letter after letter after letter and kept getting denied by the NCAA. And the coach, played by Matthew McConaughey, goes to their AD and he says, I'm going to guess that you did not propose to your wife over the phone. And I'm going to cut out some of the not church appropriate language. He says, I know that she didn't say yes in a letter. His point being, if he really wanted to get what he desired, he needed relationship with the person he was asking for that 
favor from. And so the AD, this is a true story, goes all the way to Kansas City and he petitions the NCAA in person, would you please allow us to play freshmen because all of our players died in this plane crash and they approve it. The point being this, we cannot complain about not feeling close to God when we have done absolutely nothing to draw near to him. We don't get what we want. We don't propose to our spouses over the phone. We, we don't correspond about the most important matters of our life via letters. No, we need to see them. We need to be face-to-face with them. And the same thing is true of our relationship with God. Don't complain about not feeling God when you've done absolutely nothing to draw near to him. You're the one that's far off, not God. And if 22 guys on a screen gets you more excited than knowing that the sovereign God of the universe put on flesh, dwelt among us, died in our place, and rose from the grave so that we might have new life with him, then we need to be washed. That's an us problem, not a God problem. The actual term used for the bread that represents God's sustaining presence for us, the showbread, the bread of the presence, in the original Hebrew, it literally means the bread of his face. That word presence is panim in Hebrew, the bread of his face. We can get face to face to God. He gives us the opportunity. He wants that level of intimacy with you. Are you going to get it? Are you going to prioritize it? Are you going to wash yourself with the word? Are you going to sacrifice the idols of your life? Because there is real life-changing, like soul-shaking intimacy available to you with the God who created you if you would simply seek his face because he will not hide from you. God has not turned aside his face from you, Christian, no matter how far away you feel from him. Draw near to his presence, seek his face, and you will find him. Our God is not a God who delights in hiding himself away from us. He wants to dwell with you. He wants to sustain you by his presence. Even Jesus himself said that man shall not live on bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. Are you feeling burnt out by the holiday season? Are you lonely Anxious, beat down, tired, not sure if you can move forward. Look no further than the God who has come to be with you. The Christmas story is a lot of things. But I think one of the aspects of it that we forget is that it is God's demonstration of his desire to be with his people. He doesn't want you feeling far away from him. He wants intimacy with you. He's given you the opportunity. Will you take it? In John 1.14, it says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The word in John 1.14 for dwell in Greek literally means to pitch a tent with someone. It's the same word in Greek. It's the equivalent to tabernacle to remain with them, to be with them, to draw near to them in intimacy. That's who our God is, the God who delights in dwelling in intimacy with his people, the God who we worship that demonstrates to us his desire to be with us as we trace history all the way back through the biblical narrative and we find God, even in the book of Exodus, drawing near to the people that he loves the most despite their sinfulness. And where did he do that? Where did God give 
his people access to his presence, the thing that they need more than anything else in the world. He did it in a tabernacle. He did it in a big tent. He did it in the same way that John 1.14 says he came to dwell among us. And so as we fix our eyes forward on the Christmas season, we're reminded that in the very same way that God tabernacled with his people in Exodus, that our God is not far away from us today because his, no, his presence no longer lives in a tent somewhere in the Middle East, but came to earth in the form of the Son, Jesus Christ, the baby who would grow up to be slain for our sins so that for all eternity God could dwell with us. Let's pray. God, we want you. We don't want anything else, Lord. We know that your presence, God, is what sustains us, is what fills us, is what guides us, Lord. We know we can't do this life without you. And so would you remove distractions, Lord? Would you help us to sacrifice the idols of our hearts? Would you wash us clean through your spirit by the power of your word, Lord? Would you draw us into intimacy with you? Would you remind us that we do not live on bread alone, that the things of this world cannot sustain us, but every word that comes from the mouth of God? Would we be a people who don't just call ourselves a Bible church, but who actually believe that the Bible is not for principles, it's for power. Lord, we want to experience your power. And so we draw near to you, God, through worship, through reading your word, and now in prayer, Lord, seeking your face, seeking intimacy with you. God, would you remind us that you are not far off, that you will never leave or forsake us, that you say in Matthew 28, you're with us always to the end of the age. God, would you encourage your people this morning that no matter what they're going through, no matter what they've faced, no matter what grime from the world they've picked up on themselves over the last week, that there is true intimacy available with you and that that only happens because of the blood of your son Jesus who died so that we might live. God, remind us of these things as we seek to worship and draw near to you in Jesus' name. Amen.